Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a familiar name for Toronto Raptors fans. But first, I want to let you know about another podcast worth checking out. Andrew Kim is the host of The Beat Drop. It's a weekly podcast playlist that brings me back to the days I spent music blogging, falling in love with new music. Andrew, how did you get the idea for this show? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a great question, Martin. So in terms of this podcast, it's been something that I've been planning over the, over the last year or so. Uh, I DJ, I produce music, and you know, I love podcasts. I love listening to stories. Obviously, your podcast is very much about that as well. Um, so you know, I wanted to tell the stories behind these artists because I felt like it can get very stagnant, especially just trying to listen to radio all the time when it's the same artists and the same rotation and these sorts of things. Um, what I'm really looking for is just modern sensibilities in terms of music, what I personally think is going to be really hot and where I think music is very much going to go. Maybe the most important question where can people find your podcast my podcast actually goes hand in hand with the playlist that i update pretty regularly so on whatever platform that you look for music on whether it's soundcloud apple music spotify youtube um, you can actually follow the, the playlist at the beat drop that's all one word the beat mm-hmm. drop uh, and then also in terms of the podcast itself you can find it like it subscribe to it on uh, podbean as well as on itunes so i'm trying to make it as, as accessible as possible thanks andrew my guest this week is eric kareen of the Athletic. Eric has spent the past decade and more covering the Toronto Raptors. He has seen a lot of bad seasons and lately a few good seasons. He's also the first journalist I've had in the show in a while, which is always fun to talk to your people. He's someone I've enjoyed reading for a long time and a guy I'm glad to have on the show. We talk about everything from his first interview to growing pains in the NBA to what it's been like writing about mental health. Here's his story. Eric, I feel like there's really only one place to begin with you. I mean, some reporters, they find themselves tied to an athlete throughout their career for one reason or another. Uh, Somebody like Bob Ryan and Larry Bird, uh, Roland Lazenby and Jordan, you and Nene. Uh, How did that start for you? (laughs) Um, Actually, my first Twitter avatar was actually Samuel D'Alembert, the Haitian player who played for Canada for for a short amount of time mm-hmm. uh, before he and head coach Leo Routens got into it and uh, decided that was no longer a partnership worth uh, pursuing. But um, <laughs> he, it was actually a picture of him from college where he was looking very dour and serious, uh, but yet had, you know, a big head of hair. Uh, and then at some point it occurred to me that maybe I should find sort of the opposite expression, uh-huh. but with sort of similar things going on uh, <laughs> with the hair. So I, I think I probably saw Denver playing in like a TNT game and that was his picture. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it certainly people seemed to like it. And there were, <laughs> whenever I would change it, uh, people got upset. And when I changed it for good, I heard about it for a while. Uh, and, uh, you know, I haven't heard about it recently, except when I, during the Houston Raptors game, when yeah. I posted a picture of him. But uh, it definitely, I think, took some getting used to for other people and, and for me, for that uh, matter. Have you, have you, has it filtered down to you that he's, that he's picked up on it? No, he definitely, I've never heard anything okay. from <laughs> him uh what's funny is that this uh a, a blog i don't know if he was a blogger or just like a you know a t- prominent twitter wizards fan from his days in washington 
uh, Wiznuts, who was sort of, co- you know, comedically inclined, also used a version of the same picture, uh, which I didn't realize. And then for a while we had the same picture, but you know, it didn't. I don't remember the first time I would have covered them after I after I used it. It was, it was more of more of a goof than anything. Yeah. Uh, just having fun, and you know, the NBA is. A fun uh, league, and and you know, before I decided to get all professional, uh, that's what I chose to go with, even though it didn't necessarily capture my personality in full. So I was I was doing a bit of research before this conversation, and I came across a website called uh, AllThePeople.net. It's kind of like an aggregator for clips and and social media profiles, anyway. I guess. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, it's got your name, and it has five keywords attached to it, and those keywords. Uh, Drake, Toronto, basketball, NBA, and Kendrick Perkins. Uh, how accurate of a summary is that of your writing career? I have no idea why Kendrick Perkins would be there. <laughs> um, I don't think I've ever written like a story where the subject was Kendrick Perkins. Uh, I, you know, I might have forgotten something. He he was more relevant when my career started than he is now, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the other four are you know, pretty much dead on. I mean, Twitter and what I actually write about tend to be very different. Uh, I mean, not in subject, but certainly in, in tone. But, you know, that, that does a good job of, uh, you know, summing things up, at least from my online presence, such as it is. Eric, you have a career that many aspiring sports writers would envy, writing about basketball for a living. How plausible did that seem to you as a high school student going into first-year journalism school at Ryerson? I think then I was a bit naive. My brother, I've told this story a lot, like I basically went into it because journalism because my brother had gone into it and I didn't really have a better idea of what to do except that, you know, I didn't want to be in school for eight years or or whatever. I didn't want to have a four-year undergraduate degree that still left me needing to go to school for a few more years mm-hmm. um, to, to to actually be able to do that. So that's sort of why I chose journalism. And, you know, maybe not before I went into it, it, it it's like I, I've sort of had my head in the clouds. But once you start like hearing guest speakers at mm. In journalism school at Ryerson, they're saying, uh, you know, if you want to do anything else at all, go do it because it's really hard to find a foothold. Uh, that's when I started having doubts and you start hearing about, you know, all the traditional media companies shrinking and you start seeing all the media companies shrinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still, you know, I still went after it to a degree, but you know, especially right after I graduated, I, I definitely had a moment of panic. Like, what am I going to do? Like, there's not going to be a situation that opens up. And, you know, one did. But it, by that point, it certainly didn't feel very likely, even though I had got my foot in the door at a few different places by then. So I, I kind of have a, remem- a memory, uh, having gone through uh, journalism school, well, at Western University, uh, as opposed to Ryerson, yeah. uh, Western and Fanshawe had a collaborative program. But going into the program, I remember having very different expectations of being a high school student, thinking what, what the life of a journalist would be like, and then getting into that university environment and then finding out what it pays to be a journalist and, and the kinds of hours that come along with that. When did those uh, sorts of things, when did you learn about that side uh, of, of the business? I mean, I don't think you really learn. Uh, I mean, actually, let me rephrase. 
uh, I my first job in sports journalism was doing Agate, which is you know basically the back page of or what used to be the back page of the sports section. Not many sports sections still have them consistently uh, for those people who actually look at sports sections still <laughs> <laughs> physical copies of like the standings and the results uh and of all the different leagues like i was taking calls from the qmjhl and the maritime hockey league and and like updating the standings and that's that's what i was doing as like a you know second year and third year year journalism student that was yeah. my part-time job until i stopped sleeping because the hours were basically you know 6 p.m to 1 a.m or uh you know 5 p.m to midnight and then i was still on a school schedule and eventually the the dissonance between the school schedule and the the work schedule meant i couldn't get to sleep until 6 a.m sometimes which was problematic mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's when i first learned about the hours you know the the money thing i know it's not the best paying job in the world but it's never been as much of a concern for me but it's hard to live in toronto <laughs> so yeah. uh so it's, uh, you know, it's something that's maybe been a gradual realization, but it's still, you know, it's, there are people in, in far worse positions than I am. I'm able to live relatively comfortably. So it's never that aspect of it really never weighed on me seriously. Right. Yeah. I, I suppose as soon as you put things into perspective, I mean, there are, there are far worse alternatives. Uh, I, but, I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong, really bad at putting things into perspective and I'm very selfish, but um, <laughs> uh, it's just for whatever reason. I, I mean, it, it's, it's fine money if you get a decent job. Now right. the, the fact is that like a lot of people, are freelancing and in, in the brief time that I was a freelancer, you know, trying to project out and see what it would take in order to do that and make it livable. That mm -hmm. was definitely daunting. Mm -hmm. Um, and my admiration for all the people who are able to pull that off. Cause I know several people in that position and, you know, not that I don't work hard, but they are, they are working harder and uh, they feel the pressure, you know, every moment of, of every day or, or damn close to that. Yeah. What was your first byline? If you go beyond uh, anything you wrote at the post, uh, if you go right back to whether it was something in high school or, you know, early university, what would it have been? Uh, it would have been, so my first, internship uh as was as a co-op student at post city magazines uh, if you're a torontonian that's like the thornhill post and the the north toronto post and the bayview post there's a few other their offices at york mills and don mills or, or thereabouts and i don't even remember i remember being very bored there hmm. most of the time as a co-op <laughs> student but Eventually, by the end of it, uh, I wrote a few stories, and my first story was on a local band that was putting together an album and had worked with Jeff Healy. And I remember going to, I think it was a studio, and my mom drove me, and it was in Parkdale, and her hubcaps got stolen <laughs> while, <laughs> while she was parked. Uh, and meanwhile, I'm talking to this band whose name I don't remember and is unlikely to be a band anymore, I'm guessing. 
And I remember telling them like, like weirdly telling them that this was, you know, not a big time interview. It was just going to be a small amount of space. And I don't, I don't know. Uh I felt the need to do that. I mean, it's probably just, you know, my basic self-consciousness and I don't know why I just didn't do the interview, but to this day, I still maybe over contextualize things instead of just asking the damn question. (laughs) So uh, maybe that was it. Anyway, that was my first story. I don't really remember anything about it other than that. But I remember, you know, it's always neat to see your name in, in print for the first time. Definitely. You didn't cut that out and, and have it saved somewhere or your mom didn't mom do that for you? Does. Yeah. Like she is, uh, for both my brother and me, uh, I think this has stopped now that I'm at the athletic cause my parents don't really know how to work computers that well. Um, but <laughs> she's, she's not printing off copies yeah, of uh, yeah, web that, articles. Yeah, and we don't want that. That'd be an unnecessary use of uh, of paper, which is a finite resource. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, trees, I guess, are the finite resource, not paper. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying. But um, yeah, yeah, she definitely for years and years kept the uh, kept copies of what I wrote, and I assume that is somewhere in my parents' home. Was basketball always the goal back then, or was it simply to be uh, a writer of some sort, uh, like your brother was doing? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, like like I said, I wasn't naive enough to believe that I'd be able to, like, call my shot, you know? <laughs> like, like, who am I? Mm-hmm. Uh basketball was probably my favorite sport, like along with baseball. And I always knew that I'd prefer to cover basketball just because of the pacing of it and the schedule. But, you know, that just happened to be the job that came up. Uh, It it wasn't, Hmm. uh, I was glad it was a job that came up, but I had certainly by that time, and I I would have started full-time covering basketball in January, 2008. By, by, by that time I had covered a lot of different sports whether it was as you know one-offs you know Uh, I'm trying to think of the sports I haven't covered by now uh, and there aren't Mm -hmm. that many Uh, I've yet to cover a test cricket match uh, or anything Uh, but other than that do you have a desire to uh, I remember my brother having to do it and he just said it was very long (laughs) Um, I, I mean I'd have to learn more about cricket and Mm. as as you could tell by my desire not to be in school uh i I don't want to learn anymore (laughs) Uh, but uh, no i'm joking like if it especially if it were like those uh you know a prestige uh or or something of of more Mm -hmm. acclaim like it would be an interesting experience i think but it's it's not on my bucket list now so probably hand in hand with the experience of getting your first byline uh, and and starting to see your name in papers is also seeing your words in papers and thinking, huh, that's that's not quite how I worded things. What did you, when did you start to get accustomed to uh, the process of sending something to an editor and and having them, you know, get, I guess getting comfortable with killing your darlings, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I remember when I was at Ryerson in fourth year and I was working for the Ryersonian, uh, which is the the official there's two papers at Ryerson the eye opener which is sort of a, a student run enterprise and the Ryersonian which is the official paper of the journalism school uh, and I had written a sports story and I, I think it was about the hockey team I don't remember uh, and the lead was changed without consulting me and 
mm-hmm. sort of because of my brother, I knew that was like a no, no. And, uh, I lost my crap. <laughs> um, and like, it seems so petty now. Uh, but I was, you know, really annoyed at that. And I, I was like talking crap about the editor and it turns out he was like the nicest guy ever. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, shame on me. Uh, but you know, fast forward a little bit and I'm writing semi-regularly about basketball and and my great first editor as like a full-time writer, Jim Bray, uh, just tears apart a column I'd written, a story I'd written about the off season saying there was way too much editorializing and, and, you know, not enough research and legwork and, you know, reporting, uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, that seems quaint now with how much people are, are you know, colonizing and opining. Uh, right. but, but, you know, it was definitely an instructive lesson. And he sort of tore me apart in a way I wasn't familiar with. Uh, but it definitely, you know, helped in the long run. Or I'd like to think it did. What was your first big break? Was it the Canadian press gig uh, during school or, or what, what would you call the, you know, the, the moment where you first got a real shot? Yeah, no, that, I think that was it. Uh, it was after the summer, it was during the summer of first year and there was just a, a job posting in like the student lounge for Agate, which was, you know, a job that along with their junior hockey writer that they often gave to, uh, to, or the junior hockey desk, I should say, uh, that they often gave to students at Ryerson or, or from wherever. And uh, the editor then and a great reporter named Neil Davidson was, you know, from Scotland originally. God, I hope he's from Scotland or else, uh, <laughs> or else I've, you know, pissed him off if he's listening to this. Uh, but with, you know, the accent and an intimidating man, uh, I went in for an interview and he hired me pretty quickly for some reason. And uh, that definitely put me in the, you know, the same newsroom as, you know, even if I if I didn't love the job itself, I was in the same newsroom as, you know, Laurie Ewing and Donna Spencer and Dan Ralph mm-hmm. and Chris Johnson and Shai Davidi and, uh, you know, many others. And I was definitely fortunate to you know get to know them as like a 19 and 20 year old uh and you know that that was it was helpful to just watch the pros work uh that was as useful as anything else what was the best bit of advice you got or the best kind of habit or practice that you'd picked up from uh somebody that you got to spend time around in those early years I might not have an answer for you. I'm really not good with this sort of stuff. It was more just watching people work the phones. I remember Dan Ralph, specifically the CFL reporter, he would always, you know, be on the phone and his contacts were amazing for the league he covered. Uh, And, you know, you got the sense that he was somebody who people called when you know they had a spare thought and that's it's incredibly valuable and you know something that i still strive for and and to be much better at because it's sort of not part of my natural skill set uh you know i'm slightly 
more introverted and that's the part of the job that that's definitely more difficult for me the the networky side of things the networking and the small talk uh i prefer to be in you know a corner writing but (laughs) um uh yeah uh that was definitely something i really admired from i was gonna say afar but you know it seemed far away Mm -hmm. but we were obviously close physically how did the Raptors gig come about uh, and when did that come about in relation to you uh, finishing at Ryerson? Yeah. Uh, so I left CP in 2006 and then later in that year, I, I the national post sport section was actually expanding, uh, which sounds insane. I know. Hmm. Uh, and they needed like extra writers on, on the desk, uh, you know, sort of writer editors, to to work on deadline because i think they were getting rid of their canadian press subscription at the time so they needed like people to basically churn out what was to take the place of what was essentially wire copy right so i did that for a while i had a few internships there as well and aaron wary who was the raptors writer when i got there left he went to mclean's to be a political writer uh, which was always, I think, where I didn't know him very well, but I think that's where his heart was. And I applied for the job and didn't get it. Matthew Sakaris got it. Uh, and I'll never forgive Matthew for that uh, because uh, he left shortly thereafter to go to the Globe and Mail uh, to work in Vancouver. But he was there long enough to where I, and I didn't get the job at the time, justifiably, like I didn't have the experience, to where somebody Mm -hmm. else got to go to Raptors training camp that year. And that was the year that Raptors training camp was in Italy. Uh, Uh, So so Joe O'Connor, who was then in the post-sports section and uh, remains one of the great feature writers in the city, got to go to Italy. And uh, so when Matthew left, I applied for the job again and got it because uh, they wanted to give a kid a chance for some reason. Uh, but my first two training camps were uh, in Ottawa, not in Italy. So uh, mm-hmm. thanks, uh, Sakaris. I appreciate that. Slightly different. Yeah, yeah, they do call Ottawa the realm of Canada. So uh, I got that. <laughs> That's something I have yeah, not no, heard it, yet. Uh... Yeah, it's in, it's in journalistic, <laughs> uh, you know, small circles uh, that yeah. uh, you, you have to be on really on the inside to, to have heard that phrase. Yeah, right. Uh, you, you mentioned already some of the the feedback that you were getting from Jim Bray at the time. And, and I know something that I heard a lot in school is you kind of get hammered into you if you're covering sports journalism at all. It's this idea of no cheering in the press box, uh, the separation between you, the fan, and then what you're covering, uh, being the objective reporter. And you know, that's changed over the years as people uh, have yeah. kind of brought their fandom into it and, and personalities into it. But, but what are you like in that first season? You get the job. Uh, and there you are uh, covering the Raptors, uh, you know, welcome to the big leagues, so to speak. Yeah, um, I remember one of the first stories I would have written, I think this was before I got the job full time. Uh, I was just I was there with Bruce Arthur, who was writing whatever the main story was that day. And I was just trying to find a sidebar. So I did a story on Karan Butler, who was like sort of taking a leap as as a as a key figure for the Washington Wizards, 
And I remember telling him that I had just traded for him in fantasy uh, for Jason <laughs> Kidd. And, you know, looking back on it, and he was really excited, like, that he was traded for Jason. I mean, not really excited, but, you know, yeah. to hear that you're traded for, you know, future Hall of Famer Jason Kidd, uh, I think he was flattered to the extent that he gave a crap, which was not very much. But, you know, uh, right. in hindsight... Yeah that was unprofessional and I wish I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> but you know, I grew up in, in Toronto. I grew up a Raptors fan, uh, you know, which makes sense, but you look, you like, you quickly learn that. I mean, it's just, sud- it becomes work. I mean, there's no really other way mm-hmm. to say it. Like, you know, I, I, I really like my job and I like a lot of things about it, but, you know, I still want to do it and want to do it well. And I, but I also want to get home (laughs) and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, when your story gets tossed six or seven different ways, because the lead, uh, goes back and forth in the final two minutes, you quickly learn to divorce your emotion from the practical job you're doing. Um, as many people say, you root for the story, not, for the team and you know that didn't take long i think all things being equal i still like pull for the raptors and you know i i it's not so much as a fan but it's not entirely like selfish i want my job i I, like it's not that i want to be more relevant i just want the job to be more Mm. interesting and Mm. i think you know i covered enough garbage years that you know it's it's more interesting when they sort of reach new levels and do new things and there are new elements to write about and that doesn't always mean winning but based on the ascent they're on now you know if they lose game one again in the in the first round and i'm Hmm. you know writing that story for the fifth time the sixth time or whatever it's not as interesting as if they you know find new ways to succeed or fail uh which is what sort of has made this season more interesting than the past few is that they're going about it in a in a different way they're they've really changed stylistically and it's given you know the people on the beat uh something new to i mean a, a few new things to to think about and write about and explore Right. Uh, it kind of goes back to, uh, I guess, the definition of news of being something, something new, something different from how things yeah. have been in the past, whether it is losing or, or winning. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, the the part about it becoming a job, and and I and I've realized that uh, I think in in any career that you take part in, uh, some of that thrill goes away after time, even if you still love it. Uh, but it's probably one of the most frustrating parts of it too. That 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 initial enthusiasm and love for what you're doing just by human nature seems to kind of dwindle over time and and we become so accustomed to it is it is it a a natural process or is it is it like is it healthy for for a reporter to have to do that to to go on with your job or um are we losing something by uh by forgetting how incredible um you know the the positions we have are you know i try to remind myself uh to a certain degree because you don't want to Like, if you're totally jaded, like, you have to, there's a balance, right? Like, you don't want to be so wide-eyed that you're not questioning anything and, you know, delving into anything and and really, you know, peeling back some layers. 
but you don't want to be so jaded that it comes across in your writing or whatever you're producing because people don't want to read that for the most part. Like they might want to read a joke about that, although probably not as much as I like to think. Uh, but they don't want to read, you know, 800 or a thousand words about how something was boring and how about, you know, the Raptors were playing the Hornets on a Wednesday night and it was a trash game and nobody really cared until the last two minutes. And so you've got to keep your mind, you know, it doesn't have to be passion, but it has to be curiosity. And, and that's where you have to look for new angles and, you know, that's where it helps to, you know, whether I like there are some days I like my job and there are some days I don't, but I always like basketball, mm -hmm. you know, like, so that, that obviously helps. And there are things about the game that are interesting to me and that doesn't really stop, even if I sometimes lose sight of, of how it's an, you know, an ongoing theme in my professional life. Uh, and that's, you know, sort of the generator of, most of my story ideas, uh, such as they are, uh, is, is that, you know, passion and interest in the sport itself and, you know, also the people in it and people in general, you know, despite not loving talking to people, they, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're interesting creatures sometimes. Do you have a, a welcome to the NBA moment from that first season with the Raptors? Uh, whether it's, uh, the, the feeling of going into a scrum and um, and missing out on an interview because somebody else is cutting in your way or uh, or just asking a, a question that totally falls flat with a player. Yeah, I have uh, two. Something uh, about that. Yeah, I have two. My first, the first year I was covering the team, Sam Mitchell was the coach and I, I asked him what I think is a harmless question about Joey Graham, whether he feels more comfortable as a starter or a reserve and he just like gives me a look and is like, he just walked by you, go ask him. And <laughs> I, I don't think I asked another question for like eight or nine months to him, <laughs> at least like he scared the crap out of me. Uh, and my other was in, uh, I think I was traveling in Boston for work and I was writing a, a feature on the Celtics. And this was by the time Rashid Wallace was there. I, that might've only been one season, maybe two. Uh, and it's pregame. And it feels like it feels funny now because like almost nobody talks before the game. Now pregame availability has really taken a hit even in the time I've covered it. But then, you know, people might still talk before the game. And I started like inching toward Rashid Wallace. And like before I could even get his full name out, he was like, I don't talk pregame. And I just like did a U-turn and, and went back to the corner of this unfamiliar locker room. Um, yes, it sounds very sad. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is sort of the deal when you're not naturally, you know, when you take things maybe too personally, when that's your tendency, uh, it can really, you know, he wasn't being like extraordinarily mean about it. Uh, I mean, there are nicer ways that he could have said it, but it's not like a whole garage, but it, it <laughs> It really threw me through, through a loop. Certainly. Uh, what's the story behind Randy Moss snubbing you in the locker room? Um, I was in Miami writing a feature about the Heat, and uh, the Dolphins were hosting the Tennessee Titans that same weekend, 
and and okay, it was yeah. like the brief period where Randy Moss was on the Titans. I think it wasn't even a full season. It might have been a few games. And so that was his first game. And I, I walk up to him, and nobody else was around him. And he's like, I'm not taking questions. And it, like this was after the game, and it blew my mind because this like, future <laughs> Hall of Famer is on his a new team for the first time, and he's not taking questions. Like, yeah. what is that? And then, like, all of a sudden, a few minutes later, he's like, "All right, I'm taking two questions." And somebody like asked if he was ready, and he's like, "All right, that's one." And you know, it was just, huh. it was, it was not the the greatest athlete reporter moment of all time, and it's sort of, you know, not that that defines who he is, but it's funny seeing him as Mm -hmm. a talking head now on on ESPN. And I actually think he's pretty good at it, but, uh, but it it was definitely, yeah, it's always, it's always funny. And this happens less and less, but it's, it's weird covering the people who you grew up watching as like a teenager. Uh, and like, those are the situations where I am most intimidated and that just, as I said, isn't happening as much anymore. I think I'm I'm older than every player in the Raptors locker room, which right. is you know, an endless frustration. Uh, I keep There's on. There's only so many Dirks make, left in the league. Basically, they need to sign Vince for that reason. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so I I can feel younger when they trade. Uh, PJ Tucker had a few months on me, so that was a good you know trade deadline trade last year. <laughs> so. Uh, the interesting part about this, I think, is the challenge when you have that that moment with a with a player, uh, pregame, postgame, of trying to get something meaningful or something insightful out of them to avoid the sports cliches. How have you managed that? Uh, it's really hard postgame. If you're relying on postgame quotes, it can be difficult to transcend that. Hopefully you can find moments either before or after the game to get one-on-one moments, you know, almost as a Mm. rule players and coaches are better in small groups or one-on-one situations than they are in front of, you know, three or four cameras and or 12 and 14 people, which totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's the best way. And, you know, with analytics and different data, and different ways of writing a story coming in vogue, you don't necessarily have to rely on quotes the same way that you used to. I still like to get them in because it gives a perspective that I just can't provide on my own. Uh, and, you know, I do get sick of my own voice on occasion. So so that's nice. But, uh, you know, there are definitely more ways to write more accepted ways to write a compelling story than there were even when I when I broke into the industry. Well, yeah. What, what do you make of the trend of, uh, and we mentioned this a bit before already, but inserting yourself a bit more into the story or how it's become more acceptable to acknowledge that, you know, you are a fan of the game. You, you, you do have, you were a fan of the team at some point of a team and to, to include that in your writing, the way that you've seen that change over the years. Yeah, I mean... It's like anything, it can be overdone, but I definitely think it's a positive because, you know, that stayed tone with the remove, it's like, it's not natural. It's sort of strips away the humanity of, of writing. And I like, you know, as much as I love basketball, you know, numbers 
or the game or the results are only interesting because of, you know, the humans who are, you know, making them happen. And, you know, a statistic isn't inherently interesting, but if you can Mm -hmm. get behind the reasoning why it's happening or the reason why a person is leading to that happening or, you know, why a coach is making a decision, it's a lot more interesting. And then from the writer's point of view, it just, it, it adds another layer of possible connection for the reader. I think there are ways and times to do it. And, you know, there are people who are over-reliant on it. And if that's your only move, you're probably not going to get far the same as, you know, anything. You need to have different tools in the toolbox. But I think as something that's accepted as one of those tools, it's a pretty, it's a pretty great thing. And, you know, I'm all for, you know, people trying to connect and, and relate to each other more rather than less. So what were those early years with the National Post like when you get on the Raptors beat? Uh, I mean, the team not nearly doing as well as they are now, but it's your first shot uh, of getting into this environment and, and taking the reins and, and having, um, you know, them put the faith in you. Yeah, it was definitely daunting. Um, I was surprised when I got the job uh, and... I was still trying to find my voice. Like, you know, I, you know, back then you sort of think that like the only route is like writing minor hockey or something smaller and building up to like a professional team. And Mm -hmm. this happened, just happened to be the job that came open, like I said. And, you know, I think, like I said, you know, finding my voice and my, in my writing, my confidence in my writing and my confidence in, you know, other parts of the job were certainly the most challenging. Uh, the people on the Raptors beat were, have been almost uniformly great and helpful. And the Raptors media relations has always been top notch. And, you know, my brother covered the Raptors for a while. So I, I was, you know, I, I knew, of some of the people in media relations and some of the personalities a bit more than I might have otherwise. Uh, so that made me a bit more comfortable, but you know, it was scary and you know, I don't, I think it definitely took a few years before I, I felt like I was writing like myself, whatever that, you know, can be defined as, uh, instead of doing, you know, a pale imitation of, of, I mean, and that's what styles are. They're just amalgamations mm-hmm. of different styles uh, of different writers, but you know, at some point you're purposely doing that, and at some point it just becomes you. And I think that mm-hmm. took two or three years for me to to form. So they needed Chris Bosch needed to leave, and they need to get really bad before I could I could find my voice. As it happens in many many professions in journalism, you you eventually found out you were one of those cuts that the National Post was making. How did you find out, and and uh, what was the the immediate kind of time like after that of of kind of sorting out? Okay, what am I going to do next? Um, I actually had the I had the flu for a few days, or I was sick with something, so I, I missed the game the previous night, the home game, and then the next day I received a call from. The editor, Anne-Marie Owens, uh, you know, had I been in the office, I I would have been talked to there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd seen people get laid off 
before, and so I wasn't naive to it. But you still, you know, I could say that, so, I, you know, I, I would have been naive if I didn't know it was a possibility, but you still never really expect it to be you until that happens. And, you know, I I had a few days there where I, I was very upset, and I remember just, like, slamming my door and, you know, trying to make sense of it and being very emotional. And then, you know, it wasn't a few days it was, you know, a few months at least until, and, and, you know, had the athletic not come along, I don't know what I would have ended up doing. Uh, you know, I knew in the period between the post and the athletic, I knew freelancing wasn't sustainable for my personality type. Uh, it just, it wasn't going to work long term for me. And, and, you know, I'm very grateful to the places that, that had me on. Uh, in that capacity, and, and I wrote some stuff that I'm very proud of, but it's 24-7, and, you know, I would just stop sleeping, and that would be bad for everybody in my life, most of all me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so you know, I was considering different things. I was considering going back to school, which is what I always wanted to avoid, and uh, right. then the athletic came along, and it was a good fit. But those, you know, those were some anxious times, definitely. And, you know, I put a lot of thought into what I wanted to do next. And I still, you know, wasn't really sure. I knew I liked sports writing. I knew I'd gained a following and hopefully that would help me in the next stage of my career. And that's the way it turned out. But I definitely had doubt about it uh, because, you know, the industry is what the industry is. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a multitude of things that will cause any journalist to call it quits and find work elsewhere. Uh, what was it for you that kept you going and, and still keeps you going? I mean, I like I said, I knew it was something I was capable of. Uh, I knew it was something I derived, uh, you know, some some pleasure from. Not that I, you know, feel great after every story I file, but if you know, I do once a week, that's pretty good, and you hear enough stories about people absolutely hating their jobs that the fact that I tolerate and even like and even love my job someday, you know, it's Mm -hmm. something I try not to take for granted. So that, that was something. And also like the lack of a, you know, I, I am ambivalent by nature, which is a really a not great trait, but everything I, I was considering you know, I could see the drawbacks so easily, you know, like I've, I've been pulled towards social work at times in my career, but you know, it's another, I don't know why I'm drawn to all these lousy paying jobs with uncertain Hmm. work rates and employment rates. Uh, but you know, I thought about going back to school for that and then just being in the same position after I graduated. Uh, and you know, the freelancing I knew was going to be a stretch to make it work monetarily while keeping my sanity and even if i let go of my sanity i wasn't sure it was going to work uh you know i could i could have you know applied for law school or something but you know i don't know many happy lawyers so uh that that was uh that's sort of what it is there there wasn't one thing that was like yeah that's that's right and in the intervening moments i met the people from the athletic and had really good conversations with them and they were really excited and energized about 
their project and that made me more excited and energized about you know doing this again so tell me a bit more about that that part how that came about getting in touch with the athletic and kind of the model that again it's it, it I mean, we're seeing the shift in i think in the media landscape how well it's all it's all to do with adapting to the internet still and how to how to make people pay for news uh, but but to how uh, the athletic has found a way of doing that what what that was like for you to get involved yeah i can't speak to the numbers obviously um as you know a millennial or whatever if if i, I think the, the definition of millennial varies but i think i qualify in, under most loose definitions so as an early millennial uh i was skeptical of the idea that people would pay for their news but they didn't necessarily, because I was so ambivalent about the future, they didn't need to sell me as strongly on that. It was more so a chance to do this again and a chance to sort of flex my writing muscles and and see mm-hmm. what I could be with with fewer, you know, restraints in terms. And let me say my time at the Post was awesome and my editors were uniformly great and they always encouraged me to to be as creative as I could be. And so it's just, I'm speaking just in terms of physical limitations, in terms of deadlines and, and, you know, a hard Mm -hmm. copy of a paper that I had to consider. So that was intriguing. Uh, I think they got my name. uh, They first launched in Chicago and they got my name through, I believe Kevin Kennedy who runs sort of the pitch talks and, and hoop talks events that mm-hmm. I'd done in the past. Uh, they had done something in Chicago and that's how they got my name. And, and my meeting with one of the co-founders, Adam Hansman, was was really good. They, you know, liked that, you know, I, I had been on Zach Lowe's podcast. That was a big deal for them. Uh, my, you know, following on Twitter was a big deal for them. You know, I, I obviously, you know, I, I came with somewhat of a loyal readership. I, I, I'm somebody who actually avoids looking at, at metrics and statistics mm-hmm. because uh, of like how much my stories are, are, I like to know generally, but I don't like to know specifically how my stories are doing because once I look at the numbers, I'll become obsessed with them. And that's not right. good for my brain. Like I, I want to, I want to write for other people, but I also want to write to my curiosity. I don't, I don't want to just like chase the, chase the page views necessarily. Uh, that's the only way it's going to be, you know, it's going to continue to be fulfilling for me, but you know, you don't want to get too far up your own backside in that, in that sense. Mm. Um, you don't want to be season three of community. You want to be season two, uh, basically. <laughs> right. Um, but, um, Although season three had a few great episodes, I uh, I am on a terrible tangent here, but uh, but yeah, that that's how the meeting came about, and they launched, and um, it's been a really great, fulfilling experience. Uh, we did really well in Toronto, and you know, I it's it's due to you know a lot of great talent coming on board, and and the founders supporting us and, you know, the vision of people other than me. I, I'm, you know, I like to think that people like what I do and, and I haven't heard much to the, to the contrary, except from, you know, people on the internet who 
insist on making their subs yeah. know, known. And, you know, if you're liked by everybody, you're probably not doing something correct. Um, but, you know, there's just so many smart, engaged people at the company. And, and it's, uh, it's nice. It's nice to work there. You have, uh, and switching gears a bit, you've been public about some of your own mental health experiences in your writing. Uh, what, what led you to wanting to share that uh, and um, to write about that, to share that with your readers? Um, <laughs> there, I mean, there is, it was certainly the first time I did so was inspired by the Bell Let's Talk Day. That was the first piece I wrote uh, was, was mm-hmm. for that day. I've had a lot of people in my life with mental health issues and I've felt the impact of people who didn't always want to share that or who wanted, and you know, that's, it's totally a personal choice and I'm not saying there's a right way or a wrong way to deal with it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're in, a close situation with somebody who's dealing with those things and they're keeping everything inside or, you know, they're keeping a big part of their lives secret. You know, there's an incredible toll placed on them. There's an incredible toll placed on the people around them. And, you know, it only furthers the idea that this is something to, you know, not share uh, and to to keep to yourself and to not right. be able to confront and and be open about like any other illness because you would never I mean it's not like everybody with cancer says oh I have cancer but it's not something to be ashamed of either it's never treated as such whereas you know mental health certainly has that so uh, has that stigma uh, attached to it often. So, you know, I, there's sort of, I, I was, I was talking to an athlete. I remember when I wrote that piece who had also talked about his dealings with mental health and uh, uh, openly. And, you know, he wrote that it was, he sort of felt compelled to share, like it, it wasn't even really a decision like that he consciously made. It was just something he had to do and he felt a necessity to do. And I think like I sort of talked about social work and that being like a a possible line that my work life might take just because I I find the thing, you know, the biggest thing missing in sports writing for me in terms of fulfillment is some sort of like sense of making the world a slightly better place and and leaving the world in slightly Mm -hmm. better shape than you left it. And, you know, I, I'm not under the illusion that I'm making some sort of great difference. But, you know, if I can use whatever voice I have to make a few people feel slightly more OK with themselves and what they're dealing with, then, you know, that's definitely a net benefit. And I think most people who who talk about these things sort of sort of echo that sentiment. And, you know, I, I've I've found it to be true in in the in the wake of writing about it, I would say. And it's been some of the most, you know, personally fulfilling stuff I've written. So, you know, I definitely get, it's not just something I'm putting out there. Like I I get something in return for it. So I can't say it's completely altruistic. 
What do you make of the tide that we're seeing with guys like DeMar, Kevin Love, uh, speaking up now in the NBA, some of the biggest players in the NBA uh, being willing to, to share those same sorts of stories? Yeah, it's great. Um, they should all be really, you know, proud of what they're doing uh, because their voices are, you know, infinitely larger than mine. And if pro athletes are dealing with it, and these are some of, you know, the most in shape, successful, financially well off, you know, top 1% of their field, even narrower than that, you know, they're the elite of the elite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly in the case of DeRozan and Love, uh, who are multiple time all stars each, if they can talk about it and confront it and, and they, you know, have to deal with this stuff, then you know, it sort of removes the temptation or, or, and and, you know, I, I understand it, why people would not understand who have not dealt with it. But when you see people who are that successful putting it out there, you either think they're lying, which would be a weird thing to say and think, or even if you don't understand it, you understand that it's more complicated than you thought it was. Hmm. And that's an important step for, everybody to get to because you know the more i learn about mental health the more complicated i realize it is and you know it's something where there aren't easy answers or easily identifiable answers and that sucks for a brain like mine because i'm so analytical and and you know i want to understand why and and the acceptance from going through it is the hardest part so if you if you don't have that experience of going through it, I can understand even more why it, it seems like such a foreign concept and a hard to understand concept. And the more people who speak out about it, the more that understanding can come. You've seen this Toronto Raptors team change through the years. You've seen the attention in the city change around this team. Uh, what do you make of where things are right now the excitement level around uh, the raptors today i mean you're asking me after a week in which they gave up 132 points twice so uh <laughs> you know uh, yeah <laughs> beat writers i mean i try to keep the long view in mind but oh my god the the mentions get get messy after you know they lose games like they lost to oklahoma city and cleveland but you know in general you know, it's it's a really exciting time for the team, the franchise. Uh, there are, you know, for the first time that I can remember, there is an actual possibility without a major injury that they could get to the finals. And, and like I was saying, it's just new. That sort of optimism is new. And the cities, you know, I always thought when I was, Growing up, the Raptors started in 1995. I would have been 10 then. And I thought, you know, when people like me became, you know, part of the key demographic or whatever, that the Raptors would be, you know, nearly as big as the Leafs and Jays just because, like, the Raptors were sort of our my generation's team. That's what it felt like to me. And I don't think, mm-hmm. you know, by television ratings, that hasn't proven to be true by other metrics that hasn't proven to be true, but there's such like a diverse, passionate following of this team. And I do think it's growing and the way that the team is growing 
alongside that makes it a really fun franchise to to follow and cover you know what they do this year who knows uh i understand why people are scarred by the past most of me expects them to lose game one of the first round too uh but you know and and we're all products of where we come from and what we've experienced so i i don't while i sort of preach this you know live in the moment sort of philosophy i definitely don't practice it or i'm not able to practice it um but you know it's been a really fun season and 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 just the slow growth over the last five years has been amazing to cover i wish masayu jerry would still swear and curse though (laughs) yeah that would well thanks a lot eric i appreciate your time yeah it was good chatting with you thank you so much That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoy Eric's story, he's worth a follow on Twitter, at ecareen. Uh, you can check out The Athletic, too. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review. I love that you're listening. I want to share this with more people so I can keep this going for a long time. Also, if you want to get in touch, three ways you can do so. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. I'm also on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.